The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB, right here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here, taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night. It's the third day of July 2022. Happy Independence Day to all. I hope you're having a great holiday weekend. Our engineer, Brian Graves, he's having a great weekend. He's with us, as always, across the way. I'm happy to welcome you guys aboard tonight. So glad that uh, you could be with us. First up, we'll welcome in the great rock and roller. Edgar Winter will be with us. And in the second half, we'll speak with the co-star of High Heat on the MLB Network. Alana Rizzo will join us. So sit back, relax, get yourself a drink. Enjoy our great edition of Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. As always, some great people, some great talk up ahead. As always, before we begin, I invite you to follow us on Facebook, on Twitter. It's uh, at WGBB Sports Talk. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Donahue, WGBB. And if you miss a show, they're all cataloged out on the website so you can listen to them at your leisure. Well, our first guest... A musician, songwriter, record producer. He is known for being a multi-instrumentalist, playing the keyboard, guitar, sax, percussion, as well as a vocalist. His success peaked. If you, you guys are as old as I am, you remember the 1970s with the Edgar Winter Group, Frankenstein, Free Ride, the whole nine yards. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight, Edgar Winter. Edgar, good evening. Hello, Bill. Are you ready to rock and roll? We are ready, Edgar. We are ready to take a free ride right here on GBB. <laughs> I want right. to ask you right off the bat, Edgar, as we use a baseball colloquialism, how are you feeling? I feel great. And uh, really a pleasure to be here on the show. Uh, Sports-oriented, probably my inability to play sports because of my visual deficiencies, probably responsible for my interest in music. Understood. Not the only thing I did, I was a bowler. I could, I could bowl. Uh, you don't really have to have. That's more of a field thing. But I had like a hundred and eighty average for a while. Nah, could, nice, nice I going. I could do that, but I couldn't like see to hit a baseball or uh, any of those things. Well, I, I could see it, Edgar, and I still couldn't do it, so there you go. <laughs> but we, you yeah. know, It's interesting that uh, I feel like that there is a similarity in uh, sports and in music, just in that I think that I think that humanity in general puts so much emphasis on the differences between us rather than the things that are so much the same and uh, in music, like, uh, it's very similar to what sports people, when you hear the saying, oh, he's in the zone. Right. And that's what it's like with music. When, when you're on stage and there's that connection, it's the beautiful thing that I love so much about music. Uh, you feel 
that you're a part of something greater than yourself and you feel that connection. Uh, and I'm sure sports people feel it for the sport, and, you know, I certainly feel that with regard to music. Well, that's a great comparison, a great expl explanation, Edgar, uh, that you, you started us off with. I want to ask you, Edgar, how did you master all those instruments and reading and writing music uh, and your early influences? Well, our whole family was musical. Mm -hmm. My dad played uh, banjo, guitar. Uh, he played alto sax in a swing band in his youth. Uh, he sang in the choir. He had a barbershop quartet that would come over to the house and sing. My mother played beautiful classical piano. Uh, not professionally. Uh, my granddad played, uh, fiddle, violin. My great grandfather played trumpet. And I thought music was just sort of a normal household, uh, daily activity. It was really a rude awakening when Johnny and I started to try to put together bands with our friends around the neighborhood. It's like, what, your daddy didn't show you no chords or nothing? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is like a special thing. Not everybody does so with regard to your uh, question uh johnny and i started out as kids playing ukuleles singing everly brothers songs like wake up little susie i'm gonna go home mm -hmm. you know cute little kids playing ukuleles and then johnny graduated to guitar and it became apparent to me he was going to, he just took to that it was just so natural for him and uh I said, well, I'll just play everything else. So <laughs> I uh, played bass for a while, then uh, switched to drums, then electric pianos came out. And I, I remember beating my hands bloody on those old upright pianos. You'd try to put a mic in it, but uh, you could never turn them up loud enough uh, without it feeding back. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, then I got really interested, uh, since my dad had played alto sax, I got his old saxophone out of the attic, and uh, then I became really interested in jazz uh, and classical, probably more than pop and rock music. And I loved, all, you know, Charlie Parker, uh, Miles, uh, Coltrane, all, all the great jazz guys. So, uh, and I also loved all styles of music as well as being an instrumentalist. And this is one way in which Johnny and I were so different. We both had this intense love of music, but uh, Johnny had that vision, that ambition and that drive and the dream. He was going to be a star. Mm -hmm. And he read all the magazines and watched Bandstand, and he was Johnny Cool Daddy Winter with the pompadour and the shades and the guitars. <laughs> and the girls, and I was like the quiet kid that played all the instruments, so uh, he'd learn a song, and then uh, I'd, uh, it fell to me to show all the our neighbors who weren't really musicians, I'd figure out all the rest of the parts in the song and show them what to play, so that's how it all came about. Interesting, very interesting. Edgar Winter tonight on the program is with us. Now, the Edgar Winter group... Uh, it's about 1972. Dan Hartman, Ronnie Montrose, Chuck Ruff. You formed the Edgar Winter Group, Frankenstein Free Ride. Tell us about that particular period uh, with the Edgar Winter Group. Well, coincidentally, we were 
Long Island residence. We had a place on Sands Point. Oh, nice. Uh, okay. And, uh, you know, I had, I moved to New York right out of high school when I was 18, and we lived upstate, like Johnny's house was in Rhinebeck, around that area. Sure. But, uh, the Edgar Winter Group, uh, was based in, in Sands Point. And that was, it was like, uh, <laughs> it was like a concerted talent hunt. Uh, I just had decided that, uh, after my first band, White Trash, which was sort of a revival of all the guys back in Texas and Louisiana that I grew up playing with, and I just decided, well, I'm going to put together the quintessential all-American rock and roll band, and I wanted to find people that were not only great musicians, but had charisma, stage presence, and could contribute to the overall direction uh writing, singing, everybody in the band sang, everybody uh, had song ideas, and uh, it was just, it was one of those things that uh, the first person that I sort of discovered was Dan Hartman, who's from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we were listening to tapes that came into the office, hundreds of tapes. As soon as I heard Dan's tape, I just knew immediately, oh, this this guy is fantastic. He he has a great radio voice. Really, uh, uh, there was sort of a a youthful enthusiasm about Dan's writing, and he he loved pop music. Uh, and I tend to be with my interest in jazz and classical. I tend to overcomplicate things sometimes. Dan had a really beautiful, uh, simplistic way of uh, of writing. And uh, then Ronnie Montrose I had played with. I knew him from Boss Gags, uh, you know, having played in that band and also with Van Morrison. I'd encountered him on the road several times, and I thought uh, he had that sort of edge. He had an unpredictable, he was kind of like a bad boy. And I liked that chemistry between, uh, between Ronnie and Dan, and I thought he... And Dan was really a guitar player. I had to talk Dan into switching to bass. And then Ronnie uh, suggested Chuck Ruff uh, with uh, Sammy Hagar. Uh, they had a band together with Ronnie and Chuck. Uh, and uh, and Chuck was just like one of those, he just loved to play. He's like a ray of sunshine. He'd really shake his hair. and He, he just, a, a great drummer, cool groove. And Bands are all about chemistry, and as soon as you know we started to play, I knew we were on to something right away. Mm -hmm. You certainly were, Edgar. And uh, I want to talk to you about Frankenstein. I've read many stories about how that came about. Give us a little uh, insight into how uh, Frankenstein was created, so to speak. Well, certainly I've told the story so many times, it, and it is fascinating, but somewhat lengthy. I'll try to... Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah we're, we've but, got time. Uh, I actually came up with the riff years before the song uh, was e e performed or, or recorded, I should say. I was playing with my brother Johnny, and uh, no one knew that Johnny even had a brother at the time. And uh, I played on his first couple of albums, and he'd do... Uh, He'd do the first half of the set with his blues trio, and 
Now I'm going to bring on my little brother Edgar, and I'd walk out. Ah, oh, there's there's another one, <laughs> and they said, just alluding to the fact that not only do Johnny and I look similar with the long white hair and so forth, but uh, it was just a uh, like uh, Johnny. Uh, he had a, a look, you know, to begin with, and then the fact that there were two brothers. Uh, somewhat alike they even heightened that sensibility so I had written that riff as a sort of a walk on uh, and you know and I thought well this is a good way for me to showcase myself as an instrumentalist so I played Hammond organ and uh, alto sax and then we had two drum kits on stage and I did a dual drum solo with Johnny's drummer, Red Turner, uh, and we used to call it the double drum song. So we played it all over the world and promptly forgot all about it for years. And uh, then when synthesizers came out, uh, an important part of the story is that I just happened to be the first guy to get the idea of putting a strap on the keyboard. Right. And that's a deceptively simple, it seems like an obvious idea, but uh, uh, throughout my career, that's one of the things that I really feel uh, meaningful. It really changed the face of music uh, in that I had been so frustrated as a keyboard player being stuck behind a big bank of keyboards, nobody can see what you're doing, and I want to get out there and boogie, so I put the strap on that keyboard and for the first time an audience was able to see what a keyboard player was doing and then associate that with the sound that that they were hearing uh and you know it changed a lot the look of a lot of bands there to follow uh so i was looking for a song to feature the synthesizer and i thought oh i'll bet that oh that old double drum song would really sound cool with that subsonic synth bottom because that would really change the whole vibe you know it's really kind of monstrous and so we worked up a version of it and we never intended to record the thing because uh i kept uh designing new sounds for the synthesizer and uh as i would develop a sound then i would write a different piece of music to go with it so the song kept growing in length, and it got to be like 25 minutes long, because oh. I kept adding, I'd come up with a new sound, write a new section, stick it in the song, and uh, so when it came to recording, we had the whole album finished, and we just happened to accidentally have some long, some of those versions of, we just called it the instrumental back then, and it was way too long to put on an album, uh, so uh, we never entertained that idea, and it really didn't have anything to do with the direction of the band. Uh, I thought the strength of the band lay in the co-writing between Dan and myself, and Free Ride was a song that I thought had a good chance of being a hit. Mm-hmm. So anyway, at the end of the at the end of the session, uh, I was talking to Rick Derringer, and he said, "Well, maybe we could edit that." you know, that instrumental into something usable. And I thought, well, that's a crazy idea. I love crazy ideas. <laughs> so it was a great excuse to get even more blasts than usual and then have a big end of the session 
editing party. So back in those days, the only way to edit something was to physically cut the master tape, which was uh, sort of like cutting a diamond. You make one mistake, and, and it's it's over. So uh, you just cut it up with a razor blade and splice it back together uh, with splicing tape. So it's lying all over the control room, draped over the backs of chairs and overflowing the console. And we were trying to figure out how to put it back together. And the drummer, Chuck Ross, mumbled the immortal words, Wow, man, it's like Frankenstein. <laughs> Drawing the analogy of an arm here and a leg there and pasting the thing back together. <laughs> we all looked at each other, Frankenstein. So... There you go. The monster was born. There it is, folks. And yeah, I remember, Edgar, uh, we, we bought the 45 at Amato's Music in West Islip. We took it home and played it and played it and played it. And then we were listening to FM, got away from WABC in Manhattan. And uh, all of a sudden, there's a different version of Frankenstein. There's more to this song than the 45. And uh, yeah. We'd lay down on the floor and put the speakers on each side of our head and hear the drum going back and forth. Yeah, it was a fun. It's still, I you know, to this very day, I, I love playing that song. It's just, it's just a great excuse to jam, you know, and uh, everybody gets a chance to play. Yeah, but, that, uh, that's true. It, uh, uh, it's. A great example of the fact that a lot of times when you, like, you, whenever anybody asks me if I have any advice, people that are beginning, and I always say, follow your heart and play the music that is fun for you. The music you like to play, don't worry about what the trends are present day or what any record company or any other professional tells you, uh, because we thought uh, in our when we tried to second guess what an audience was going to like, we thought Free Ride would be uh, the most likely song, and we never even thought of of uh, Frankenstein. But it was just so much fun to play, and I think that's what communicates in in that song is just the sheer joy of, of band getting together, and just rocking out and. Having a great time. Exactly. That's true, Edgar. Edgar Wynn is with us tonight on the program. Now, I want to ask you about Rick Derringer. We mentioned him before. Uh, when did he join the band, and uh, what was his influence on uh, the Edgar Winter group? Well, he, he definitely uh, had uh, profound influence. He played with both, uh, played with me and with Johnny, and uh, I had met Rick uh our manager was interested, uh, he played with the McCoys originally, the song Hang On Sloopy, and I had heard the McCoys play at a club in New York called the, uh, Club Toronto, and as soon as I heard Rick, I said, wow, I felt an immediate musical kinship, even though he was from the Midwest, uh, like uh, Ohio, Indiana area, he I could tell that he had listened to uh, all, a lot of the same music. Uh, he really was a uh, well-educated player and knew all of the, the old blues roots that both Johnny and I were so familiar with. So uh, the way he influenced uh, me was 
that back in those days, uh, the prevailing wisdom that the, was that the artist should never produce his own music. Now, thankfully, that's, got, you know, uh, no longer the case. But, uh, I didn't want to produce her like some big fat guy smoking a cigar that was going to suggest three words and then try to claim credit for writing. Uh, and I just said, well, I'll get Rick, Rick to produce. He, he understands the music, and uh, uh, I'd rather have a real musician that I can communicate to that understands what the band is about. So, you know, he produced uh, White Trash and the Edgar Winter Group. Uh, and, uh, you know, and with the Edgar Winter Group, on, they only come out at night. Uh, Bill Simzik, the engineer, really had a great deal to do with... Uh, and Bill, like, did all, like, Hotel California, all those great Eagles early hits. And, uh, he had more to, than, you know, than Rick. Uh, I actually considered him more like, uh, at least a, a co-producer, certainly responsible for the overall sound. But, uh, Rick, uh, Rick and Johnny and I all played together and learned from one another. And, uh, I liked, uh, the, you know, Rick was very structured in his thinking. He was really great at constructing solos and, uh, and very, uh, uh, a great rhythm player as well as a soloist. And, uh, you know, we're great friends, uh, to this very day and still do a lot of shows together. So, uh, you know, and, he, of course, wrote uh, Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo and mm-hmm. Alive and Well, specifically for Johnny. And he and I co-wrote together in both those bands. Uh, so uh, a great influence and a cool guy. Definitely. Rick Derringer, folks. Uh, Edgar Winter describing his influence on uh, the Edgar Winter group musically, of course. Now... You kept yourself busy, Edgar, also doing a lot of session work, I, I read. You worked with Meatloaf, Tina Turner, uh, David Lee Roth, and uh, even Michael McDonald. Uh, give us a little uh, insight into your session work. Uh, Leon Russell. There you go, another yeah. one. Uh, yeah. He and I actually had a band together for uh, for a, a number of years. But those are just things that, that came up uh Meatloaf, uh, I, I knew Todd Rundgren and Todd produced the Meatloaf record. And, uh, Todd had asked me to play on his initiation album and I had no idea who Meatloaf was. And, uh, I just, you know, I said, well, sure, you know, I, I'm, I was there and I love to play horn and I don't get that much of an opportunity. Uh, I think, Probably because of the uh, the powerful image of the synthesizer, I think I'm thought of more as a keyboard player. But I really consider myself more of a sax man. Sax is is sax is my act. Really, mm-hmm. that's my favorite instrument, and I've always felt that way. Just because uh, there's something so organic about a saxophone, it. Uh, your life's breath is supporting the tone and you can bend notes with your lip, with your embouchure. 
and it's it just becomes uh, much like a guitar, like an extension of of your human body, and uh, just a more flexible. Like when you think of a piano, it's just rods and hammers and strings and pedals, and uh, you know you can strike a note, but you can't really. Uh, you can't make it vibrata. You can't bend the pitch. You know, you can't do any of those things to it, uh, uh, other than softer, louder, and sustain. So anyway, uh, playing on the meatloaf record was just uh, was just fun. And like another session, I had no idea that Bad Out of Hell was going to do what it did. And to me, it was just fun to play the horn. Uh, uh, with Tina Turner, uh, Dan, uh, after the Edgar Winter group, Dan got really heavily into production and he was doing the Tina Turner record and, uh, invited me to play on that and I'm a huge Tina fan and I said, oh man, uh, and he did something with Stevie Wonder that he invited me to play on as well. Uh, and, uh, and then he produced James Brown. I would love to have done something with Jay and uh, didn't get the opportunity. Uh, and Michael McDonald just called me out of the blue, and I had no idea that he even followed my music or knew who I was. And this was right after, the, this was the first band that he put together after the Doobie Brothers, his first solo record, uh, That's What It Takes. And he invited me to play on the record and be a part of the band. It was a great band. And that was just one of the highlights of, of my uh, career. I I just love, to me, Michael has one of the most magical voices. Uh, and, uh, uh, of course, he's on my most recent record, uh, which I'm sure we'll get around to, Brother Johnny, which is a tribute to my brother Johnny Winter. Right. And he does this beautiful ballad called Stranger. But uh, playing with Michael was just fantastic. And then uh, with Leon, you know, Leon was one of the, uh, like I loved all of, uh, you know, Dr. John and Alan Toussaint, all those New Orleans-style piano players. And Leon, had he had a great left hand in particular. He was left-handed. And uh, I used to learn a lot from listening to Leon's records and uh, you know we we wrote a bunch of songs together that never were recorded but uh, it's just like that's the great thing about music is that if you hang around long enough you eventually get to meet you know and like these are people that I never thought I would even have the opportunity to me much less uh share a stage with like you know what are the what are what are the chances of kid from an albino kid from Beaumont, Texas uh playing with the Beatles <laughs> right <laughs> you know, with with members of the Beatles and that brings us of course to Ringo Starr uh who i i think uh uh well, just a few words about the Beatles. Uh, this is Independence Day and all about freedom. And uh, I think that the Beatles uh, are in a class.
class unto themselves. They they were bigger than music. They changed the mindset of an entire generation, and they brought about a revolution without having to fire a shot because it was a revolution of the mind, of the mm-hmm. heart, of the spirit, uh, peace and love, and uh, very much what uh, what Woodstock was all about. And, uh, you know, uh, I got Ringo to play on the same song that I had just mentioned that Michael sings on, and Joe Walsh, uh, the great eagle guy. And uh, so you think about... Uh, Michael McDonald, uh, Joe Walsh, and Ringo Starr, an interesting array of people yeah. on the same song. So there you have it. Excellent. I have so much more to ask you, Edgar. I want to ask you if you'd come back with us on a future date. I would love to, Bill. Outstanding. We we will uh, get in contact with you, or I'll speak with Elizabeth, and we'll, we'll get a uh, mutually convenient date. Uh, we're up against the uh, half-hour mark here. I want to thank you, Edgar, for coming on. It's been a pleasure and an honor, and I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend some of it with us on the uh, other coast here. You are most welcome, Bill, and I look forward to uh, talking. I definitely uh, want to mention more about uh, Brother Johnny. Right. Welcome that opportunity. So mm-hmm. get ready to rock and roll. All right, Edgar, we'll be back with you. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. That is Edgar Winter, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we will speak with the star of High Heat on the MLB Network, Alana Rizzo. Stick around, folks. You're listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB, Merrick, Long Island, New York. I hope everyone is having a great Independence Day weekend, or as it's known across the ditch as Treason Day. I once had a chat uh, with Ian Anderson uh, about, not of the Braves, Ian Anderson, of of Jethro Tull, about Treason Day and about what it means to the to the British people, and it was quite interesting. Uh, I'm happy to, <clears throat> excuse me, to clear my throat and to continue speaking with you. Uh, we bring you ball players, athletes, people in the media. Uh, we're going to have an upcoming segment on uh, the return of baseball at the movies, which I love doing. Uh, we're going to bring on the creator of Bull Door, Mr. Ron Shelton. And uh, as you just found out, I love speaking to folks in the music industry as well, like Mr. Edgar Winter. If you have any ideas or requests, tweet me, please, at B. Donahue, WGBB. I just want to mention, before we move ahead, the line on Jacob deGrom tonight in Port St. Lucie. One and two-thirds innings, zero hits, 
no runs, no walks, five strikeouts. The first three pitches topped out at 101 miles per hour. He eclipsed one, eclipsed 107 times. 24 pitches, and they expect uh, two or three more rehab starts until he will join the Mets rotation. So I myself very, very, very cautiously optimistic because uh, I, I would not like to see a setback at this point. But we'll move ahead now. Our next guest, her baseball broadcast career began with Root Sports Rocky Mountain, where she served as in-game reporter and host for the Colorado Rockies. Of course, now we see her as a contributor and a co-host of High Heat on the Major League Baseball Network. It's great to welcome to the show tonight, Alana Rizzo. Alana, good evening. Good evening, Bill. How are you? Thanks for having me. We're doing uh, wonderful here. I hope you're having a great Fourth of July weekend, Alana, and uh, we're we're, uh, having some great weather up here in New York, so we're happy about that. Good deal. I wanted to <clears throat> mention, excuse me again, uh, my interest in sports broadcasting really starts with uh, Bob Murphy, Lindsey Nelson, Ralph Kiner. Two of the three are uh, Ford Frick winners, uh, members of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Across town, we had Phil Rizzuto, uh, Frank Messer, Jerry Coleman with the Yankees. On the national scene, we'd get the baseball uh, game of the week was the extent of seeing uh, other ball players from other other teams play each other and uh, Kurt Gowdy, Howard Cosell. I want to ask you a lot of when did your love uh, for the game of baseball really come into play? You know, I grew up born and raised in Colorado, so we had pro baseball, but we didn't have a major league team there until 1993 when the Colorado Rockies came to Denver as an expansion team. So mm-hmm. I didn't grow up as a baseball fan. I grew up certainly more as a football fan. Ah, okay. The Denver Broncos, um, you know, in the 60s were there, and um, it was a, a love that my entire family shared. So I grew up more as an NFL and, and college football fan than I did as a baseball fan. But the Rockies came in 1993, and I was a senior in high school at the time. And I remember the first game I ever played was at the old Mile High Stadium before Coors Field was built and opened in 1995. And I was in my accounting class, and my accounting teacher, who was also the men's basketball coach, Mark Veronic, uh, rolled a TV into the classroom. It was a day game. And we were allowed to watch the first ever Major League Baseball game in Denver. And it was, of course, uh, a sold-out crowd, over 70, you know, plus thousand people because it was in the football stadium at the time. And I remember that um, moment vividly, uh, being able to finally watch Major League Baseball. And from there, you know, I became a baseball fan. I would be lying if I said, you know, I was a diehard baseball fan growing up because we just didn't have Major League Baseball. But mm-hmm. as I, you know, made it through my journalism career, and had the opportunity to go back to Colorado. Uh, you know, my entrance into covering baseball started in 2007 with the Colorado Rockies, and I actually started in the middle of that crazy run. You might remember at the end of 07 when they won 21 out of 22 games oh, to yeah. go to the World Series. They, you know, they they swept the Phillies, they swept the Diamondbacks, and then they had to wait for the American League to finish up. They met the Boston Red Sox, of course, in that World Series, and then they got swept. And I don't think that the Rockies would have beaten the Red Sox, but I do think it would have been a more competitive series had they not had to wait for so long because they were on such a high, and the momentum was certainly in their favor, and then it just came to a screeching halt after they swept the Division Series and the Championship Series. So that's really how it started for me. I started covering the Rockies in 2007, 
Aaron Cook was their ace at the time, and I really had to start and learn from the ground up. I didn't have the uh, in-depth knowledge of baseball, so it was a it was a massive learning curve. And and now, honestly, I can't imagine my life without baseball. <laughs> Great, yeah, I I believe you, Alana, definitely. Now, tell us a little bit about your time with the Rockies. Uh, what exactly your duties were and uh, f- forging relationships. Uh, that, that you may still be in contact with and may, maybe anybody who mentored you. Yeah, you know, I think that's such a huge part of what being a good journalist and a good reporter is. It's the relationships that you establish with players and, and setting a foundation uh, so that they know right away that you've done your homework. I think it's so important, particularly as a woman covering a male-dominated sport, of course, that it's important that you are prepared and ask knowledgeable questions and know know the game as much as possible. I'll never say that I know the game more than someone that has played, obviously, but I think it's so important to be able to tap into that knowledge that is around you. I mean, I, I was very fortunate to um, be covering the Rockies uh, and have the ability to ask my colleagues that played the game um, with you know while I was there working. You know, I. I learned a lot from George Frazier and of course Yankee fans will remember George Frazier um, mm-hmm. you know I, I learned a lot from listening and, and talking to Jeff Houston who played in the big leagues for a really long time and then you know as my career continued and I went to MLB Network I, I worked with so many former players um, and interviewed a lot of current players obviously and then you know I spent seven years with the Los Angeles Dodgers as their sideline reporter and pre and post game host and you know talk about the the depth of knowledge walking in the halls of Dodger Stadium I mean I had conversations with the late great Don Newcomb and and Sandy Koufax who still looks amazing uh, of course Vince Scully I was able and fortunate enough to work with Vince Scully for two seasons before he retired and you know, just the amount of people that would walk up and down those halls and the legends of the game that are still very much welcomed um, at Dodger Stadium and, and being able to have conversations with Jackie Robinson's widow and his daughter and his, one of his sons. and um, You know, just the amount of people that I was surrounded by, uh, I was very fortunate to be able to, to pick their brains uh, and learn as much about the game as I possibly can. And I think that's incredibly important not to assume that you know everything and not be afraid to ask questions, but also to be as prepared as you possibly can. Thanks for talking about your time with the Dodgers, Alon. I was going to follow up and ask you about that and about some of the great names that you would encounter with that storied franchise out in Chavez Ravine. And uh, you, you won Emmys with the Dodgers, didn't you? I did. I actually have uh, seven Emmys to my credit wow. now, but I can say that only because of the teams that I was surrounded with. It takes so much to put a good product on uh, television, just as it does to put a good product on the field for us to cover. And I was fortunate that I covered a lot of really good teams and a lot of teams that people cared about and, and were watching. So I have two Emmys with my time with the Colorado Rockies, and then I have five with my time covering the Los Angeles Dodgers. So I've been very fortunate you know, with the Dodgers to have a team that's perennially in the postseason and very good and has an international fan base and a, and a team that people care about. And this is a team that, you know, they never really rebuild. They're just constantly reloading. And, uh, you know, we have an amazing team at Sportsnet LA that put together an incredible uh, television product. And I think, you know, when it was when the network started in 2014, I was fortunate enough to, you know, start with the network from the ground up. We launched the network together, and it was myself and Oral Hershiser, Nomar Garcia-Para, 
um, Jerry Harrison Jr., John Hartung was our studio host, and then, of course, we still had Vince Scully at the time. So, I mean, you put those those people together with those resumes, and, I, you know, I would have humbly put our broadcast team up against anybody. And we had really, really great years together. And then Vince Scully retired, and, you know, we were all incredibly saddened but understood why. And then we get Joe Davis, who's incredible and has just become the main voice and face of MLB on Fox. Um, taking over for Joe Buck, who has gone with Troy Aikman to Amazon. So, um, you know, covering the Dodgers is a blessing, and it's a much like covering the Yankees. Um, you know, much like covering you know any any really historic franchise, the, the Cardinals or the Red Sox or you know the Cubs or you know the Mets. Um, I was very fortunate to have to have that position and, and be with a team that made me feel like a part of it, uh, which I, I'm, I'm much appreciative of. And you know, when they won the World Series in 2020, um, it could not have been more gracious. And that was a very strange year to cover a World Series because we were in the bubble and, you know, we couldn't celebrate with the team and, you know, get close to the players and really get a sense of how they were feeling and their emotions. But uh, I'm just glad we had baseball at all that year. We're speaking with Alana Rizzo tonight from the Major League Baseball Network. And I wanted to check with you, uh, Alana, they gave you quite a send-off, the Dodgers did, when, when you left them. <laughs> and uh, they also gave you a ring, didn't they? They did, yes. Wow. They are an incredibly class-act group. Uh, I, I got both National League championship rings when they went in 17 and 18. And then I did receive a 2020 uh, World Series ring, which, of course, they did not have to do that. And it, it was incredibly uh, gracious. I, I'm just the lucky benefactor of a team that is nothing but, but world class. And, and I have such a great amount of respect for the way that they treat their people. And, um, you know, it was, it was a difficult decision to leave. I didn't, I didn't want to leave, um, but my personal life just kind of dictated that I do so. And, you know, my fiance lives on the East Coast and I was on the West Coast and it just, you know, wasn't working, um, logistically anymore. So mm-hmm. after they won the World Series, I figured, you know, there's no time like the present and the Dodgers could not have been more gracious. Um, and then I actually did a game back at Dodger Stadium as a member again of MLB Network because this is my second stint with the network. And I went back and did a game for MLB Network at Dodger Stadium and, and the, you know, the reception could not have been, um, more wonderful and they did a very nice tribute on the on Dodger Vision and it was very nice they're a class organization top to bottom a storied franchise Alana as we mentioned mm-hmm. definitely and to, to have a, a 11 carat white and gold ring encrusted <laughs> with diamonds and sapphires that doesn't hurt either I'll tell you that, that, no, that's no, a great it's, keepsake it's very, heavy. <laughs> it's very heavy and it's, it's locked away in a safe I, uh, it's, yeah. it's gigantic and it's not even as um, as ostentatious as the uh, Atlanta Braves one is. That one is, is quite something as well. So it's um, yes, it was very kind of them to give it to me, but it's locked away in a in a safe place. Good job, good job, as <laughs> as your buddy Chris would say. Uh, <laughs> now the New York Times broke the news uh, about the all woman on the air crew in the game between the Orioles and the Tampa Bay Rays. Tell us about mm-hmm. that, that uh, groundbreaking game that, that you were a part of. 
Yeah, thank you. It was uh, back on July 20th of last year at Tropicana Field. As you mentioned, it was the Baltimore Orioles at the Tampa Bay Rays. And honestly, when they asked me to give them a quote for the game, I couldn't understand. I didn't understand why. I didn't know that it was an all-female broadcast when they put me on the schedule to do it. I just assumed they needed a reporter for the game. So I said, sure, I'll go. And then our PR department said, hey, we need you to give us a quote about being a part of this. And I'm like, why is anybody caring at this point in the season about the Orioles and the Rays. I was very, I just didn't understand. They're like, no, 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 it's the first ever all-female broadcast crew. I said, oh, well, that's a little bit of a different story. But, you know, as much as it was nice to be a part of a historic event, I almost wish that it wasn't such a big deal. I wish it would have been more of the, you know, the norm than the exception. And honestly, the toughest part of that day was just, um, accommodating all of the interview requests and all of the different directions the five of us were being pulled in. We got so much press from this event. It was really incredible, and it was nice to get the attention, but at the same time, if you really think about it, I mean, this is something that the five of us have been doing for decades. If you look at the resumes that the five women that participated in this broadcast have, I mean, we literally have done thousands of games, you know, combined uh, amongst the five of us. So, once Melanie Newman called the first ball and strike, it was like, okay, now it's just business as usual. But it was a nice moment to be a part of, and I'm thankful that MLB Network chose me to be the sideline reporter for that game. But there's so many more women out there that could have easily filled our shoes. I mean, there's a lot of very talented women that know how to call baseball and know how to do an incredibly good job covering male-dominated sports. And, you know, that was just one instance of, of an opportunity the five of us had, but you know, again, we've all been doing this for a very long time, and it was nice to get on a national stage and show the world, hey, we can do it. But honestly, it was business as usual once the game started. Quite impactful, Alana. Definitely. Alana Rizzo with us tonight from the Major League Baseball Network. Now, I want to talk to you about Quick Pitch. I, I watch Quick Pitch uh, most mornings, about uh, mm-hmm. 6, 6 or 7, whenever I catch it because I don't stay up to watch the end of the Mets games anymore because I'm old, Mm -hmm. so I have to get my sleep. (laughs) Now, how do they set up Quick Pitch? I'm very curious about it. Uh, Is there there a group of guys that that goes through video from every team? Yes. I mean, there are literally – the producer of Quick Pitch is a a colleague and a friend of mine by the name of Moses Messina, and he Mm -hmm. actually um, has produced – he started out in the research department, and he um, then has become – since become a producer, and he actually produced Chris Russo on High Heat for the last couple of years. And then they had a couple of changes with personnel and staffing, and, you know, as as everybody, COVID affected a lot of things, so – um, we had some personnel changes, and there's some new talent coming in, and they wanted Moses to be uh, on a quick pitch uh, to kind of guide the new talent. Uh, so they have two new hosts, uh, Sierra Santos and Kiana Martin, mm-hmm. and they, they um, you know, split the duties with quick pitch. But basically the way that it happens is we are watching every single game. They, every single game that is on is on at the network all at once. And then, you know, we have an amazing um, – high soup desk, which is basically our highlight desk that is cutting everything, all of the packages, all of the highlight reels, all of the different sound bites, everything. So this is all happening as the games go on. Now, as the story of the game changes, so do the highlights, and so does what we focus on. But that crew is there live until the last game is over with. So when the West Coast games are finally over at, you know, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, East Coast time, 
that's when the final edits um, and final highlight packages are put together in the show. But Sierra or Kiana or myself when I did it or the, you know, the number of quick pitch hosts that we've had throughout the years, um, we're there until the final out of the last game of the day. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a basically, you know, a, a 7.30 p.m. to 3 a.m. shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, every single game is, is, you know, they're putting things together as it's happening. And then based on whatever the most important storylines of the day are, that's how the show is then what we call stacked. Um, you know, that's how the show's put in the rundown. and, and they, But they're there. They're live. Um, and then, of course, you know, the re-airs are, are not live. But she does, whoever's hosting that show does it for the first time live. And then if they need to change anything, then they'll they'll do that in post-production, and then that's why there are so many rears. Because it is a very popular show, and it is a show that, you know, it allows the fan to get caught up on every single thing. I watch it every single morning just mm-hmm. to make sure, because I don't, I can't watch all, I'm a, I'm a Dodger fan, and I can't watch Dodger games no. all the time, because they don't start until 10 p.m. here. So I live on the East Coast. So um, it's a very informative show it's a very helpful show but uh yeah they they they're paying attention to every single thing that's happening and we actually have editors that just sit um and and log every single thing that happens in every baseball game on a daily basis so if we ever have to go back to something you know 10 years ago that happened on you know july 4th of 2012 we know how to pull it up Mm mm-hmm Interesting. Great, great explanation, Alana. Thank you for that. Uh, r- really uh, fills in a lot of holes that I had. And uh, uh, what amazes me, Alana, is that they will get clips from uh, the radio crew, from the television mm-hmm. crew, from both teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We have uh, we have feeds from everything. So, mm-hmm. for example, if we're doing if we're if we're taking in a game. Oftentimes, after high heat goes off the air, I will throw to a game. I, I throw to afternoon baseball presented by right. Corona Premier. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's two games on the A net and the B net. Well, we will take the home team's feed. So we will, like, let's say, for example, we are doing a Dodger Padres game at Dodger Stadium. We'll take Sportsnet, Sportsnet LA feed. But if we're doing a, like, St. Louis and Philly, they're playing right now, I think. We'll take the Phillies feed. Whoever the home team is, unless, unless Vince Scully was still working, then regardless of where the Dodgers were, we would take Vince's call. Mm-hmm. But, um, we take the home feed and we always, you know, we have all of the radio feeds as well. So it's, uh, it's quite the, uh, it's quite the machine that they have going on at MLB Network. And we do the exact same thing for the NHL. They're on the same campus. NHL Network is right next door to MLB Network. Understood. Uh, yeah, that, that definitely helps me out in understanding all the work that goes into that great show, Quick Pitch. Now, <laughs> talking about, uh, the game as, as it's presently being played, the, the New York Yankees are having an absolutely amazing season and it disappoints mm-hmm. me as a Mets fan. I don't like to see that a lot, <laughs> but obviously they can't maintain this torrid pace. Uh, how do, how do, in your opinion, how does it look like for the Yankees the rest of the way? Well, it's funny that you say that, Bill, because I have had this conversation before that, I mean, right now they are on pace to win 115, 120 games. But to your point, I don't think they can maintain this forward mm-hmm. pace throughout the remainder of the season. We're about at the halfway mark today. I know the Brewers uh, completed 81 games today. So we're, we're about at the halfway mark for all of the teams. 
And the Yankees, I think they just need to play respectable baseball in the month of July and the month of August. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they already have such a strong command in the AL East that regardless of how well the Boston Red Sox played in the month of June, they didn't gain any ground. I think, you know, the three teams, the Red Sox, the Rays, and the Blue Jays are fighting for those wild card spots. I do think all four four of the five ALT, AL East teams rather are going to get in. I think the Yankees have such a strong lead in the division that I don't I'm not worried about them, you know, faltering or not making the postseason or needing a wild card bid to get in. I do think that they if they maintain a decent pace of winning or decent winning percentage throughout July and August and then get hot again in September going into the postseason, I think you're going to see, you know, a, a historically good team. Um, you know, I, what's impressed me the most about the Yankees so far this year is their pitching, and it's not even been Garrett Cole. While he's been impressive, that is to be expected from him. I don't know that you would have gotten – the um, production that they've gotten from Tyone and, of course, Cortez. I, I, you know, I, I'm very impressed by what those guys have, have given the Yankees. And remember, they're doing this without the services of, of Zach Britton, who's incredible. Um, you know, they're also doing this with a closer that what a what an absolute get for the New York Yankees. I don't know where this team would be if they didn't have homes. Mm-hmm. So, um, this is a team that is destined, um, you know, every year they're not satisfied unless they get into October. Um, but if they don't win at all, it's a disappointment, much like how the Dodgers have been the last, you know, eight, nine years, having won the division, you know, for eight straight years and then losing it last year by one game to the Giants. Um, but I would be very happy if I were you because not only are you getting Jacob DeGrom back in a few weeks, you guys are getting Max Scherzer back on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So to have the, the season that the New York Mets have had already without the two, arguably the best one-two punch in terms of a starting rotation uh, in the league, you've done all of this without that, I think is incredibly impressive. Um, You're right. So yeah, right now, you know, it's, it's a good time to be a, a, a New York baseball fan because they are two both. I think the biggest the biggest acquisition that, that the Mets could have gotten is Buck Showalter. Definitely. And you, can, you can just see the dividends that, that Buck has already already been paying in, in the clubhouse and in the dugout, and people love to play for him. You know, we caught, we joked that it's, it's buck ball. I mean, what he's <laughs> doing with that team has been really impressive. So it's definitely a good time to be a baseball fan in, in the city and the state of New York. Sure. They definitely, or they finally got it right with Buck Show Walter uh, bringing him in <laughs> to uh, right the ship, so to speak. Now, but what I think, Alana, is, uh, as you say, DeGrom and Scherzer are coming back. They have other guys on the horizon that will be coming back. I still think they need another bat in that lineup. I know they've mentioned Trey Mancini, but ha- mm-hmm. how do you feel about adding another bat to that to that lineup? Oh, I couldn't agree more. I, I definitely think that um, I think both teams could use uh, another bat. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think Trey Mancini would be a really, really good get, um, just because I love the way that he plays. Obviously, he has a tremendous story, great come you know comeback player of the year story, beating cancer and everything that he's done. But I like the way he plays. I think he's a, he's a solid bat for sure uh, in that lineup. Uh, you can never have enough pitching either. And again, you guys, it's almost as if you're acquiring two unbelievable arms that are already on your team. You, know, you don't even have to spend anything to get those two back as, as they're coming back from injury. So 
Um, you know, again, it all depends on who gets hot at the right time. You know, there's no way, in my opinion, that the Yankees can stay this hot for the remainder of the season. You know, at, at some point, these people are going to come down to earth. I mean, right now, we were talking about it the other day on High Heat, how Aaron Judge is on pace to break Roger Maris's uh, single-season home record for the Yankees, which that's the only single-season home run record that Chris Russo was Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, but... You know, you can't you can't stay that hot forever. And if, as long as everybody on the team is not cold at the same time, uh, they have enough to sustain. My fear with the Yankees is that they rely too much on the long ball. Uh, they rely too much on the home run. I don't think the Mets are as home run reliant, um, and I think that bodes well for the postseason. Now, in the final seconds that we have, Alana, I want to ask you, if you were a Major League Baseball player, what would your walk-up music be? Oh, my God, that's such a great... You know, I've thought about this. Um, it's a great question. I think just because it's, you know, obviously male-dominated sport, I think Who's That Lady would be pretty funny. <laughs> There's a good one. Um, the Isley yeah, Brothers. Probably, I would probably go with that just because Who's That Lady, you know. Um, I love country music, so I might do Dirt on My Boots by uh, John Party or something else by uh, Dirk Bentley. I'm a big Dirk Bentley fan, so... Um, I don't know. That'd be, that'd be a fun, what an opportunity, huh? That'd be a, a fun uh, choice to have to make. Yeah, that's, you're definitely right. Well, Alana Rizzo, thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend some of it with us up here in New York. Uh, you did a great job, and I thank you once again, Alana. Oh, it's my, it's my absolute pleasure. Have a good evening and enjoy the rest of the weekend. All the best, Alana. Well, that'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Edgar Witter and Alana Rizzo, my engineer, Brian Graves, and you guys for joining us. See you next week on the 10th. We're going to return to baseball at the movies with the creator of Bull Durham, Ron Shelton. He's got a new book called The Church of Baseball. What else? And we're going to bring to you new one of the new Hall of Famers, Tony Oliva. Till then, folks, safe weekend, safe holiday weekend. Be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.